Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Well, I promise this will be another good one. This is going to be part three of the uh, Westerville City Schools Marxist Professional Development, which is what I'm calling it, of course, but it is their quote-unquote Black History Month presentations. Uh, this is uh, a third presenter, and what I'm picking up on is that apparently all of this must have taken place in one day and was recorded on one day. And to me, it sounds like this was actually recorded originally on Election Day of 2020. So, uh, yeah, it seems like each one of these presenters is just presenting one after the other. and Or they're doing it all from separate accounts, clearly at, at separate times, but they're all doing it on Election Day because they all seem to be referencing the anxiety of Election Day. Um, but before I, I start playing this particular episode and bounce through it a little bit, because again, right off the top of this episode, it's it's remarkably ill-informed and hypocritical, as you would expect. I want to apologize for a couple of things. First of all, uh, I got a little heated in the last episode, a couple episodes ago, when I was reading from the nomassforkids.com website. That website is very upsetting. And it's upsetting for a variety of reasons, I'm sure most of which are pretty obvious. But, you know, one of the things that's very, very difficult is as a school teacher, in particular when you're training to be a school teacher, you're running on a lot of intuition. And hopefully pre-service teachers are reading books, and unfortunately many of them are not. They're, they're given packets of information by their professors and then just read through the packet and will use the packet in class and blah, blah, blah. But what they don't do is they don't talk with them usually about the abuses that they're going to witness as school teachers and how frequent those abuses are going to be. And neglect is the most common form of abuse that you see. So I just want to make this clear that, you know, if, if the tone of my voice sounds serious when I'm when I'm reading these things or I sound upset, well I kind of am, because it is upsetting. And it is serious, and it requires, I think, a serious tone and a serious point of view, and I, I certainly try to take that. I try to make light of certain things as much as I can, but it's not always that easy. Um, just the the rates of abuse within K-12 schools are endless. And as we all know now, and I'm currently writing about it again, the and as the posts on the nomassforkids.com website would indicate to anybody reading it that the sanctioned abuse that has taken place now within K-12 schools is just that. It's been approved. It's been okayed. It's okay that we're abusing them. They don't think that they're abusing them with the mask wearing and the social distancing and the putting them in plastic boxes or uh, see-through containers while they read and learn and write and do whatever they, they claim to be doing. They, they may justify it in their own minds, these educators and administrators and school boards, that they're not abusing students, but they are. And so I'm going to keep mentioning things like that. But again, I apologize for my tone in the last one. You know, I got a little heated because it just, it really bothers me. And uh, it, it, I would be lying to you if I said that it doesn't rehash old feelings from the past where I've encountered those things, in particular when I've encountered these kinds of abuses and the teachers and administrators are disinterested in doing anything about it. 
they're just like, well, that's just what we do here. And it's just, you know, there's nothing I can do. And it's just the way that it is. No, no, that's not an excuse. That's the poorest excuse possible. So on those same lines, again, I'm, I'm sorry for any of that. Uh, I'll, I'll try to try to tone it down maybe in the future. But with all that said, this part three is going to be difficult again because we've got another hypocrite here who's uh, trying to lecture everybody on the American dream and they decide to give a full presentation on the metropolitan areas and how the metropolitan areas are set up for people to fail. And I'm sure what she won't say is uh, that they're run by Democrats. I bet she's not going to say that. See, they always leave out the major factual parts of these presentations. So again, this is the Westerville City School District Black History Month video series. And this is by, this is titled, The Making of Metropolitan Inequality, The Formation of Metropolitan Space, by Glennon Sweeney, Senior Research Associate with the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University. So here we go. I'm going to start with the top and the moderator who uh, who gets things kicking off, and then we'll get right into it. And it won't be long before I dive in and provide a little bit of commentary and analysis. So here we go. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this session. This is session C. Our presenter is on the call. I am Lucy Rader Brown. I'm the EL coordinator for the district. If you don't know me, and I'd like to introduce our speaker for this session. This is Glennon Sweeney, Senior Research Associate at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State. So welcome, Glennon. We're glad you're here, and I'll turn it over to you. You are muted, Glennon. <laughs> We'd love to hear what you have to say. Naturally. I'm trying to figure out where I need. I have two screens, and once I put it in PowerPoint mode, you guys disappeared, so I had to move it. Um, but as I'm getting that up and going, I do just want to briefly say thank you all for being here. Um, I know this is a big day in America um, that a lot of people feel anxious about. And so I appreciate you taking your time and I appreciate any attention you're able to give. And also I know that this has been a hard year um, for Americans, but I think it's been particularly a hard year for a lot of teachers. My sister is a teacher. I do a lot of work with a lot of teachers. Um, so thank you guys uh, just, you know, for, doing what you do in, in, in this difficult year. I, I do appreciate it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start sharing my screen now. I'm going to move this so I can look at you guys. So give me just a second. I got to make you guys bigger now. <laughs> All right. So I am a senior research associate at the Kerwin Institute for the study of race and ethnicity at OSU. Uh, Kerwin is an applied social science research institute for uh, the study of race and ethnicity. Uh, my discipline is uh, city regional planning. So I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the built environment. And so I'm going to focus a lot on 20th century policies um, that have created a metropolitan space and really the kind of unequal metropolitan landscape uh, that we all we all experience. Um, Got to get that working. There we go. So the American dream, I'm sure you've all heard of it and you can all see this slide, correct? Okay, yeah, the few of you that have your, you're all 
saying, okay, good. Um, I'm sure, sure you've all heard of it, right? Work hard. You can have it all. Anybody can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I know about you guys. I grew up in Worthington. Totally believed that I could be president. I believed that I could do absolutely anything. I could be an astronaut if I wanted to, even though I hated math. I believed all that stuff because I believed in this, right? But as we got older and, you know, became exposed to the real world, I think most of us have come to realize that the American reality is that not everybody who works hard achieves the American dream. That not everybody can actually pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Not everybody's got boots, quite frankly, right? There are a lot of people who do work hard, work more than one or two jobs, right? More than 40 hours in a week, and they're living in neighborhoods like the one on the left. Okay, so... Like I said, didn't take long. She's already pooping on the American dream. She's just pooped on it. And she doesn't believe in it. Now let me tell you a little bit about her hypocrisy right here. She just admitted that she grew up in Worthington, Ohio. Worthington, Ohio is a very rich, very wealthy, very well-to-do, well-educated, so to speak, subdivision or sub-neighborhood, neighborhood town area of Columbus, Ohio. So we have an individual here who grew up in a very wealthy area of Columbus, Ohio. Probably has never moved. I'm taking a guess now. Has probably never moved. Ohio State's just down the street. She probably went there as a student, graduated, stayed there for her master's, probably stayed there for a PhD if she even has that. She may not. Um... If she's a senior research associate, maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. The point is, is that she's already, and of course she said she wanted to be an astronaut when she grew up. Well, astronauts aren't real, so she doesn't have to worry about that. She dodged a bullet there. Point is, is that she's a senior research associate at Ohio State University. So where's her oppression then? Where, 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 is her, where is her own personal inequality? I thought I could be president, she says. No offense, but if you grow up thinking that, you don't understand who's been president and why they've been president. Presidents are normally selected by the elite in one form or another, either good guys or bad guys. That's usually how people become presidents of the United States. They usually don't grow up in Worthington and then, you know, become a professor and then become president. So it doesn't work that way. But I hope what she says, again, as I said in the beginning, that she's going to mention that Democrats are the ones that have created these unworkable environments. That's why she's using the phrase bootstraps all the time. A person can pull them up, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and, and they can, that's possible. People would say that it's impossible, and the people that say that are usually the socialists. They're usually the communists, because they want you to rely on government. That's why they use that phrase. Well, people can't. Even Martin Luther King said it, which she's sort of alluded to already. It's great for a person to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, I think he said. And then he said something like, but it's, it's impossible for the bootless man to be able to do such a thing. Well, I mean, come on. We're splitting hairs here. The fact is, is that if you're voting for your own demise and you're voting for criminals to represent you, then you're at, and then what? I mean, what are you asking for? You're asking for false promises. You're asking for handouts, and that's again 
what she's probably going to allude to in the rest of her presentation, which again, I'm not going to play the full presentation because it's an hour and 26 minutes long. I'm just going to bounce around it, but we, we, know where, we know where she's going, and we know where these people go, and they go right to government, that government is the best thing for you, that government can help you, government should help you, not you should help you. But have a lot of wealth and live in neighborhoods like the one on our right. You know, and, and why is that? And when we look around, it occurred when we made our name by creating this mapping methodology called opportunity mapping. And, you know, because at the beginning when Kerwin was very young, we had a lot of people with GIS expertise and they would put things on maps. And one thing we noticed when we started to map things is we noticed this spatial inequality from birth to death. So this is Franklin County and all these maps are going to be Franklin County. And so this one is infant mortality. The areas that are red and orange are the hot spots. It's a hot spot map. Notice how it's kind of, it looks like almost like an upside down T that kind of runs just kind of south of I-70 and east of I-71. Pay attention to that shape. This is uh, opportunity, sorry. Uh, this is what we made our name for. The dark areas are higher opportunity. The lighter areas are lower opportunity. And again, you see that upside down T there. This is poverty, darker areas, higher poverty. Upside down T is still prevalent. This is incarceration. Darker areas are higher incarceration rates. Again, we see that upside down T pattern. This is senior vulnerability and density. So the red and kind of pink and orange places have the higher um, density and higher vulnerability of seniors. And so vulnerability of seniors is taken by a number of indicators, things like, you know, being a single senior, being over 85, being dual eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid, um, having their, uh, I think, a disability. There, there are a number of things on the list and you can look it up. It's on our website, that study, I believe. Um, but again, you see that, you know, with Bexley's kind of sticking out like a sore thumb is an area with a lot of seniors, but not a lot of vulnerability. But beyond that, you can really see that upside down T and then we get to life expectancy. And so in this, the kind of dark colors are the real high. All right. And then her presentation freezes um, momentarily. First of all, what she's just shown isn't new. None of this is new information. None of this. This has been known for well over a century. If an individual lives in a high crime area, what are you likely to have? You're likely to have greater rates of death, greater rates of poverty, low income, um, and life expectancy is going to not be nearly as high. This is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. In fact, what she's done is, is she's just mapped out everywhere where Democrats have control in the Columbus, Ohio area. That's exactly what she's done. I have no doubt in my mind she's a Democrat herself. She's a full-blown communist, if I had to take a guess. But what she's reporting on here isn't new. None of this is new. They just don't want to accept any responsibility for the fact that they're the ones causing this themselves. And of course, they're claiming that they want to end it. Well, we got to end this. We got to end this. Their solution to end it is to hate white people. And and by the way, they're not commenting on the fact that that infant mortality is remarkably high among 
poor white children also, and poor white families also. Same thing with life expectancy, earned money, you name it, job opportunity, you name it. As far as, 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 far as someone like her is concerned, they only focus on black Americans or Hispanic Americans, and that's usually their focus. It's, it, it, it's like the word urban. If you say the word urban to somebody, one of the first things that pops in their head is a black American or black Americans. That's not true. This is an urban environment she's talking about because of its socioeconomic environment. It has nothing to do with skin color. It actually has more to do with how a person votes. That's the real problem. She also has a massive verbal tick. A massive verbal tick. And I've mentioned this countless times on the podcast. I've said it, I've said it countless times. And you've heard me say it. She ends her sentences with the word right. Question mark. Right? So we've got this, right? And then we've got this, right? And right? 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 When a person does that, they're giving away the fact that they don't know what they're talking about and they're looking for affirmation. By ending a sentence with the word right in their own brain, they're saying to themselves, what I'm saying is accurate. Now I need someone else to agree with me. That's what that means. So deep down in her own soul, she knows that what she's saying probably isn't accurate or just a flat-out lie. And her brain has decided on the word right, question mark, at the end of a sentence in an effort to justify what it is that she's saying in front of other people. It's really, it's really bizarre. It's a horrible verbal tick. Absolutely horrible. Hubs and they drive economic activity. Surrounding municipalities are usually kind of dependent upon them, right? Suburbs are the independent municipalities whose growth and development economies are tied to and are dependent on those city central cities, right? And, and we can probably even prescribe characteristics to urban and suburban in our mind, right? Urban spaces are more diverse in terms of people and in terms of land use, really, right? And they're denser. Suburban spaces are less dense and, and they're more segregated, right? In terms of land use and in terms of people in general, right? And then if we think about, you know, and this is the way we generally do it, we're going to go through this and it's going to become more complex as we go, but this is how we generally think about it. But today I want us to also think about kind of the origins of suburban space. And, and I'm going to argue that white flight is a really big driver of the creation of the suburbs. Even beyond the suburbs that were created during the period of white flight following segregation. All right. She calls this white flight. So she doesn't take any time getting into, we're nine minutes into her presentation. It doesn't take her any time to get to the race hustling. And it's, it's white people leaving urban environments. That's the reason that urban environments struggle and the reason that suburban environments are more safe. It's funny she admits that. That's a very funny admission. So here's what her slide says at the top. It says, white flight and the origins of suburban space, the idyllic image of the suburb. And it's... She's trying to make it out like it's a bad thing. It's a beautiful little lake with a bridge, with a family biking across it. What's the problem? What's the problem? 
and it says when suburbs do not fit this stereotypical image of a white safe space, they are qualified generally in the negative as black, poor, declining suburbs, or even as post-suburban. Suburban space as white safe space. This, this slide is filled with nothing but gibberish. It's absolute gibberish. So let's keep listening to her gibberish here. And that the idyllic image of a suburb that we think of looks more like this than any other place. It looks like this is New Albany, right? Those oh, it's so horrible. It's so horrible. It's so peaceful. Um, Moving so on. Moving on. If you have a question, I think you can just unmute and probably interrupt me. I'm okay with that. If you're. Oh, great. That'll be fun. Okay. So then she says, the, or, the, the, the slide says, the origins of suburban space. Phrases of white flight. Escape to the suburbs, middle class suburbanization, and escape from the suburbs. So she has escaped from the suburb. Oh, escape to the suburbs, escape from the suburbs. And then she has a sign on her, uh, an old sign from sometime on her. Uh, it's a black and white picture on her on her slide here that says, "We want white tenants in our white community." All right. Yeah, those signs used to exist. They don't exist anymore. So she has to pull back into a past, into a time that doesn't exist anymore, to make the present relevant for her. It's ridiculous. Okay, with that, or you can try and chat, but again, I don't know where that went uh, right now, so <laughs> I don't know if I can I can see 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 when you chat. Quite frankly, um, hey, Glenna. Yeah, Glenna, this is Cynthia. So yeah. there's about there's about seventy people on the chat on the okay. call right now on the Zoom. So you have about seventy folks, and yeah, just if you want them to, just tell them to. Um, we have a couple people on here who can kind of monitor. I see Adam Fluge is on here. So, Adam, if you don't mind, maybe you can kind of check the chat and kind of give her any kind of questions that come about as she goes on. So she's sure not thing. able to see it. Thank yep. you. I'm just going to move forward here. Again, this is an hour and 26 minutes of just um, awful And, and stuff. also people who were associated with the Catholic religion, Polish people were both associated with being Jewish and Catholic Catholic and Polish people were very discriminated against in this time. Germans were very discriminated against, especially getting into the later on in this era as we get into world war one and then world war two. Okay. So she's into the divisive nature of everything now and everything is divisive and Everybody hates everybody, and there was a time in history where everybody hated everybody, and blah, blah, blah. She's, she's, she's wringing that washcloth dry as best she can. Let's see what else she says here. And again, I'm bouncing around here in this presentation because it's just, uh, there's, there's a lot of content here, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of spotty history. And she's, she's, picking, she's picking and choosing particular areas. For example, 31 minutes into this presentation, she has a slide and it says case study the decline of king of king lincoln so i assume this is a particular area of the columbus uh columbus area and it says pre 1936 
There were mixed income, mixed race, black and Jewish, robust economy, and black wealth. And then post-1936, property values plummeted. Those who could leave did. Neighborhood entered long period of decline. And there has been recent gentrification beginning in the 1990s. She'll never say Democrats. That's what she's not going to say. She's not going to say that it's Democrats that were responsible for this. The welfare state, Democrats. Poverty, Democrats. All of it. All of it. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, that act in the House of Representatives was the longest filibustered act in the history of the United States, and it was filibustered by Democrats. Democrats in the House of Representatives in 1964, not a single one of them voted for the Civil Rights Act. Not a one of them. And I'm going to get clean here with this quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but Lyndon Johnson, of course, at the time, being a Democrat, signed it into law because he said, and he knew, if I sign this into law, every N-word American will vote Democrat for the next 100 years. That, that was his quote. That's what he said. It was either 50 or 100 years, something like that. But that's what, that's what he said. That's a fact. She's not saying those things. This spotty history and the inability to look in the mirror and, 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 or, or look through a prism, I suppose, and see both sides and all sides of the thing objectively to arrive at the actual answer is what, these, is what a lot of these professors just don't do. And that's their biggest mistake. That's their biggest mistake. She does mention, and I'm going to pretty much close this down because her, her presentation is, is very um, singular in her location, and she's, she's clearly focusing on the Columbus area and a few other parts of Ohio like Cleveland and, and whatever, but she's claiming, I'm, I don't know, she's not an economist, but as I've said, she's not mentioning some, some things, but she is mentioning others. And one of the historically accurate things that she does bring up is she mentions the differences between and the discrimination that did exist between Jewish bankers and blacks who were interested in getting loans. Jewish bankers wouldn't give blacks who were interested in getting loans because they didn't think that they'd be able to pay the loan off um, or they didn't like the business or they just didn't like them for who they were. That was a real thing that happened. Uh, it still happens with everybody today, regardless of a person's race and regardless of, of where they live and where they come from. If a person goes into a bank and they don't have any credit and they don't have any money and they're asking for a loan, it's very difficult to get a loan. If you don't have enough money in the bank um, you know that, uh, that the bank can use to leverage against the loan, then they're not going to give you a loan. It's, it's, not, it's not complicated economics, but yes, there were discriminations that existed. She's also, though, in her mistake, I think, is that she's consistently referencing the 50s and the 60s as being the major portion of this. And, and, and she's right, but that doesn't exist today the way that it did then. And I do agree with her on, on some of the things that she's mentioning, but again, she's, she's referring consistently to the phrase white flight. 
that it's whites leaving urban areas and and seeking safer, more pros- more prosperous areas. And she's talking about that like it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. People always tend to seek out safety. They tend to seek out independence. She even criticizes the town of Westerville for being an independent community for a very long time before it became a city. That's not a bad thing. An individual seeking out individual, uh, you know, in- independent properties and independent towns to live in is not a bad thing. Less government is a good thing. But if I had to take a guess, I'd say that her approach is, is that bigger government is a good thing. So I'm going to end it there. Um, I'll link the description again to the, to the full video if you're interested in taking a look at it. There are some decent things here, but again, at the same time, it's clearly one-sided for the most part. It's pretty slanted. She does a pretty good job of blaming whites for just about everything. And essentially, to kind of summarize some of what she's said here throughout this presentation, because I have watched the entire thing, is she's making it sound as if making money and urban, suburban, and rural environments shifting and changing and developing is a bad thing. That seems to kind of be the overwhelming theme here, that making money is a bad thing, that developing areas is a bad thing. It can be a bad thing if you have crime and corruption that comes with that development. And in many cases, that does happen. I'm not denying that. Clearly, it does. There are certain businesses that get certain tax breaks, like hospitals and what have you. And again, it depends on the kinds of people and their morals and values who run these particular establishments. But this, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the race hustling constantly that's, that's certainly a problem. And um, she's again, she's essentially commenting on what happens throughout time. So she's she's mentioning things that just happen as a result of people living in particular areas. It's is I suppose it's no different than discussing the weather. Weather just happens, and sometimes it's predictable, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it rains when it's sunny out. Um, if you've ever lived in Florida, you know what I'm talking about. That's just the way that it is. So I don't think that this is overcomplicated per se, but she's certainly trying to make it sound like uh, whites are to blame. And I'm not sure that that's accurate, and I'm certain that um, that's slanted and definitely one-sided. She saves, I mean, she mentions communism throughout too. Not not by name, but her policies and her procedures and her angle is certainly a communistic one. Let me ex- let me I'll I'll even let her describe it, and I'm sure you'll hear it. I'm going to play this last part of her talk, and uh, and you'll hear exactly what I'm saying. So again, listen to her words, listen to her lingo, and you'll pick up on it immediately. And if you want to become more involved, and you really want to fight for social equity and and social justice. Know that you don't have to be a warrior. You don't have to be a protester. You don't have to be downtown protesting. There, there's a place for that. And some people, we do need those people. They're critical to the movement. But we also need people who are who are building new systems and approaches, building new curricula that's, that's you know, decolonized and things like that. And we need people connecting, creating the fabric that really create, that, that, that it creates social justice movements. 
and weaving it all together. And so there is a role for everyone. And now I will answer your questions. Great. So it sounds like you've already answered some of the questions. A lot of people um, have indicated this has been a great presentation and have been inquiring whether or not they will be able to have access to these slides. But it sounds like everyone will get access. Is that correct? Yep, I'll send them. Okay, great. So I'm just going to go a few, um, go through some of the questions. Going back to towards the beginning, the question about, um, you know, are we still um, faced against similar segregated um, segregations happening um, with the purchase of homes nowadays? So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges we have now is that we have such large wealth gaps, right? And so if you want to be able to have housing choice and you want to be able to live places, quite frankly, I can't afford to buy into Worthington. I'm, I'm a researcher. I don't make a ton of money. They don't pay academics a lot of money, right? I can't afford to buy into a community like Worthington. A lot of people can't afford to buy into a community like Worthington, but everybody wants to live in a community where you have the opportunity structures like Worthington, right? And yet this, the patterns of where people live are perpetually seem to be being re, you know, recreated, right? And maintained. And so the bottom line is if we want to live in a, in a society that doesn't have segregation, every kind of person has to move. And what I mean by that is rich people need to move, poor people need to move, black people need to move, white people need to move. Every kind of person has to move because we are literally that segregated. What I'd like to see happen is us move towards a society where every single person, where, where, where wealth isn't a barrier either having it or not have, we're not having wealth isn't a barrier, right? A policy like baby bonds. Uh, my old director, Derek Hamilton, uh, he was one of the guys who came up with this idea. This is the idea where the federal government or a local government invests in every baby at birth. And the investment that they make is based on the health of that kid. Every kid gets an investment, it's race neutral. But low-income kids get bigger investments. What that means is that when every kid turns 18, every kid has a down payment for a house or money for college or that investment in their building and their business that they want to start that so many wealthy white kids get through their family's inheritance. You know, you guys don't have to raise your hand, but I can tell from the few people who have their cameras on, it seems to be an overwhelmingly white group. How many of you guys got help with your down payments for your houses from your kids? You don't have to raise your hand or from your parents. You don't have to raise your hands. Or how many of you help your kids with their down payment? You know, I mean, just these are the things that wealth buys. And like so many of our parents or our grandparents got the GI Bill, got their first home through that and became part of the middle class. We built pathways to opportunity. We just only created them for certain groups. Challenge now is how do we get everyone to the same level? If you know, I'm willing to give things up, but I'm pretty sure most people aren't. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's that's the best I got, I think. Yep, that's the best you got. You're a communist. You're just a communist. We get it. We get it. You're willing to give things up to make communism for everybody, but you don't think everybody's willing to give up what they have and what they've earned and what they worked hard for. Why is that? Why would that be? Because people keep what they earn. And people work hard for what they have. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Thank you for listening to American Education FM.
Don't forget to check out AmericanEducationFM.com where you can make a small donation or even email us and be a guest on the podcast. Until next time, never stop learning, never stop reading, and never stop unlearning. Thanks for listening, and God bless.